Welcome back, everyone. Uh, I hope you had a good break, and we're looking very much forward to um, the um, late morning and early afternoon session, depending on where you are. As I mentioned uh, just before the break, we're going to reverse the order of the next two talks and begin with um, uh, our um, presentation by uh, Connie Kellum, uh, our colleague from the University of Washington, professor of medicine, long-term uh, um, researcher, patient care provider, advocate, and just general and great person uh, who has uh, led the way in our understanding of STIs and so many other things. And so we're delighted to have her come today to talk to us about the evolution of uh, CDC guidelines and testing and treating sexually transmitted diseases because things are moving again in this area. So thanks very much, Connie, welcome. Thank you very much, Chip. Let me share my slides. And uh, please let me know if you can't hear me or can't see the slides, but I will proceed assuming you can. So thank you. It's an um, honor to be able to talk today to this group about what's new in uh, STIs in 2021. And one thing that's new is that we're trying to change the language instead of calling it diseases, we're calling them infections. And you'll see that even in the CDC guidelines. I have served as a scientific advisor to Merck and Gilead. Um, I hope after this presentation that you will be able to um, identify the recent trends in STIs, diagnose and treat syphilis, including complicated syphilis, know how to screen for and treat uh, gonorrhea and chlamydia, including at extra genital sites, and um, be aware of some of the more important changes in the 2021 STD or STI, see, I have to work at it too, uh, treatment guidelines and be motivated to uh, look up uh, the guidelines because they're an amazing resource. So where are we? Um, we're not in a good place. Uh, this is a six year in a row, uh, looking at the 2019 data on the right, where we've seen STIs increasing in the US. And you can see the uh, rates by infection, so chlamydia 1.8 million, which is about a 20% increase since 2015, over 600,000 cases of gonorrhea, which is 56% um, increase in 2015, 129, almost 130,000 cases of syphilis, which is up by 74%, and a, a very disturbing trend that we're now seeing congenital syphilis and a major increase since 2015. So STIs are alive and well, and we need to know how to manage them. So first, before we talk about how to manage them, I think it's really important to talk about why this is happening. And I think that many of the uh, people who have followed the STI field are aware that basically there are a lot of health disparities, stigma, social determinants of health that have impacts on STI uh, acquisition and, and the sexual and social networks in which people live, that, um, that has been coupled by the fact that over the last decade, we've dismantled some of our uh, public health capacity to uh, diagnose and treat and prevent STIs. And this has been much aggravated by COVID. So um, on lots of different fronts where STI clinics had reduced hours, the disease investigators were pulled to do COVID contact tracing. And that was in the context of when people didn't stop having sex. And so if anything, we're now seeing some rebounds in people coming in um, now that 
their uh, clinics are open again and we're seeing rising rates of STIs. Provider awareness is an issue. If you don't ask, people won't tell and you won't diagnose. There's a high prevalence of uh, asymptomatic infection, so you can't rely just on symptoms. Unfortunately, there's a limited uh, array of point-of-care diagnostics, growing antimicrobial resistance, particularly for gonorrhea and mycoplasma genitalium. And we're not doing as well as we could with the tools we have for vaccine-preventable infections. All that coupled on the syndemics of substance use that are manifesting themselves in terms of HIV, Hep C, and STIs. Why should we care? Well, STIs don't kill you, but they certainly can cause morbidity, especially uh, syphilis, and they also increase the risk of HIV acquisition, and that's true for asymptomatic STIs as well. These data from New York City uh, a few years back show you that there was about one in 15 MSM who were, uh, had rectal gonorrhea or chlamydia were diagnosed with HIV in a year. Similar rates uh, of an ac HIV acquisition among MSM who had primary secondary syphilis compared to about one in 53 MSM who didn't have that. And there are data like this from other populations as well, women uh, in Africa, and uh, we really have to take STIs as a harbinger of HIV risk. Why is it happening? Well, part of it is that we've had successes. The really important data that indicate that you can't transmit HIV if you're undetectable has uh, uh, allowed people to have happier, healthier um, sex lives and not use condoms. Similarly, the uh, data that indicate you can prevent HIV if you take a tenofovir-based PrEP have led us to a situation where we're seeing increasing rates of STIs. And you can't pinpoint this rate, these increases just on U equals U or PrEP, but it is really important to be aware that we are, through PrEP, we are reaching people who are also at high risk of STIs. And you can see these data from a recent systematic review by Jason Ong that looked at this globally and just um, much higher rates of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and early syphilis in PrEP users, um, both men and women. So what can we do? We can talk to our patients, we can do appropriate testing, and we can treat. And I want to highlight just a few things that were uh, highly recommended in the recent STI treatment guidelines from CDC. One is to take a gender neutral history about what they call the five Ps, about partners, sexual practices, what they're doing for protection, past STI history and pregnancy intention, take a harm reduction approach, use it as an opportunity to think about pre-exposure vaccination, talk about HIV prep, we should be doing that in people who have STIs, PEP in uh, certain circumstances in U equals U, talk about their approaches uh, to STI prevention and uh, contraception, try to do this in a gender neutral and uh, culturally appropriate way. Think about your testing and retesting, partner services, and most importantly, I think is really take this as an opportunity to read the CDC STI treatment guidelines, which have almost 1,500 references. They're really a rich resource. So now let's talk about the different STIs. Syphilis is 
on the rise, as I mentioned earlier, in adults and uh, neonates. These are the data on the left, broken down by geography. The West leads the rest of the country, and the rates are much higher among men who have sex with men uh, than heterosexual men or uh, cis women. But uh, those rates are also increasing, and that is translating to the phenomenon that we're now seeing almost 2,000 cases of um, congenital syphilis. And you can see the disturbing slope there. What's also important to know is that not all of this is congenital syphilis is due to delayed prenatal care. About a third of it is. But a third is due to delayed treatment after syphilis diagnosis. So that is something providers really need to be aware of and try to uh, reduce that. So clinical diagnosis, first of all, we'll come to talk about serologic diagnosis, but be aware that primary syphilis, the shankers that we were taught to be uh, non-painful can be painful, especially when they're anal. You can also see multiple lesions. You have to have vigilance for subtle neurologic presentations. And we'll come back to that um, in a, a case that I'll present to you. Serologic testing, there's either about half of uh, labs use a traditional sequence and half use a reverse sequence using automated treponemal tests that are cheaper and easier to uh, do from a laboratory perspective. So with a reverse sequence, you start with a treponemal test, uh, such as an EIA or a, a chemo uh, immunoluminescence assay. They're specific to T. pallidum. Their qualitative reactivity persists over a lifetime. And if it's positive, then you the lab automatically reflexes to an, do a non-treponemal test, such as a RPR, VDRL. These are non-specific tests to T. pallidum. They're quantitative and reactivity declines with time and after treatment, so useful for clinical management. So What's important to be aware of is that you can get false positive treponemal tests. So what the lab will typically do is uh, after reflexing to the non-treponemal test, they'll then do an, a second treponemal specific test. If that's non-reactive, you can conclude the initial one was false positive. If it's reactive in the second row here, then you have to think about is this current or past syphilis treated appropriately? and if a possible recent exposure, repeat the RPR. <clears throat> in terms of serologic response after treatment, be aware that there's uh, typically a fourfold decline 12 months after primary, secondary, early, late, and it may take up to 12, 24 months if they're HIV positive or it's later stage syphilis. And you don't always see it, um, particularly in those who have low pretreatment titers. So this is one of the conundrums that we as clinicians have to be prepared for. So just in case you don't see a lot of syphilis, I included some pictures here. You can see um, a chancre as soon as 10 days after exposure. Uh, that evolves into a rash. Uh, this is an example of a very impressive rash, but it can be very settled just on the palms and soles. Um, and it depends on uh, really the, the time and uh, intensity of the rash in terms of how, uh, how it manifests. But this is a, obviously not subtle. Typically occurs a couple of months after the chancre disappears. You also in secondary syphilis will see condyloma lata and sometimes oral mucus patches. So look um, both places. Be aware that some people go from secondary syphilis um, 
back to having um, overlapping uh, primary syphilis um, or relapsing secondary syphilis. And then you get into the late syphilis, which is defined as um, latent syphilis, which is defined as early if it's in the last year or late latent if it in the last, uh, over the last year and that dictates your treatment. Rarely do we see late complications of syphilis, um, but certainly we were all taught about these in med school. Um, syphilis and pregnancy, just to say that serologic screening should happen at 28 weeks and again at um, delivery um, in settings where there is uh, high community prevalence or um, maternal risk behaviors, including um, multiple partners, sex with drug use, which is a real risk factor I think we're seeing from some of the CDC analyses, transactional sex, certainly if they're late to prenatal care or no prenatal care, using meth or heroin, incarcerated or um, have unstable housing. So think about that when you're seeing pregnant women. Um, and rescreen as um, if there's any ongoing risk of infection. Treat with parental penicillin G. Um, there's no um, real alternative in pregnancy. Some experts recommend using a, a second dose of benzathine penicillin in pregnancy, given that you have such a short window of time to treat before the baby is born. And look for um, a tighter change in a much shorter window here um, in terms of um, on the order of two weeks. And then repeat again, eight weeks after treatment um, to try to make sure that they are responding. So my first case is um, a case of uh, one of your HIV patients who's coming to your clinic for routine follow-up. He's doing well, has been virally suppressed for five years. He's living with his longtime partner, doesn't use condoms except um, when he has outside, uh, has anal sex with outside partners. He's had four partners in the last three months. He uh, has both insertive and receptive anal sex and denies any um, symptoms of rash, discharge, ulcers. So he's had two episodes of secondary syphilis the last 24 months ago, and his titers then were one to 128. He's come down nicely, so you feel like he's been treated. And then today's lab show RPR of one to 16. So what would you do next? Would you treat with penicillin uh, 2.5 million units once? Would you do it weekly for three weeks? Would you uh, call the patient and ask about ocular and odo symptoms, uh, neurologic symptoms? If none, repeat the test um, and treat if 1 to 32 or higher. Repeat the RPR or refer for lumbar puncture. So let's see how people responded to this case. Okay, well, interesting. Um, you know, there's pros and cons to some of these things. I, but I'm gonna try to convince you that you should observe and repeat. Because what we found, and these are data from um, Seattle King County, where they've looked um, back as well as from um, Alberta, Canada, where they've uh, looked and 
First of all, not everyone uh, go converts to being RPR negative after primary and secondary syphilis. It can be a quarter to a half remain RPR positive at 36 months. So this kind of case will come up. In Seattle King County, when they've looked to see um, what the predictive value is of a twofold titer or two titer increase, it's only 73%. So our approach, and I, I think not just ours, but uh, many people would uh, feel comfortable with just repeating the titer and watching for a little bit. We tend to over-treat, I think, in these um, two titer increases. Um, the titers do fluctuate and it's kind of background noise, if you will, in the um, assay. So you don't have to immediately treat. I wanna present you a second case and this uh, is uh, a patient who came in a few years ago, he was um, he's 29, he has a um, low CD4 count of 219, his viral load was 41,000, he had um, basically had dropped out of care, and he presented with loss of vision, um, and it was bilateral, uh, worse in his left eye, he's now having floaters, he also has paresthesias of his feet, hands, sore joints, had a rash maybe eight months ago, He's had a 40 pound weight loss and he's really been bed bound. And then he says that his husband, who's also HIV, uh, living with HIV has similar symptoms. He can only see shapes and lights, cannot count fingers, unable to stand because of uh, he's really cachectic. He was referred immediately to ophthalmology who did a slit lamp exam. He had bilateral anterior uveitis, retinal detachments um, bilaterally. He did get a LP, he had a, a pleocytosis, a, a reactive VDRL and FTA. So not subtle, um, and this was reported in the MMWR. What would you do next? Because we actually had a cluster of a handful of these cases of ocular syphilis. You treat him with IV ceftraxone. Um, you give him procaine penicillin and probenicid as an outpatient. Give him IV penicillin um, either as an inpatient or through a pump. Give him benzathine penicillin weekly for three weeks or doxycycline uh, 100 PIB for 28 days. And I would agree with that. Uh, I would feel very uncomfortable um, giving someone this sick with uh, definite uh, neurosyphilis and ocular syphilis who's been out of care. I would not uh, treat him with procaine pen, IV ceftriaxone. There's no reason to use that. We have less data on it. So really use the definitive treatment of IV penicillin. And he, he was admitted and uh, completed his treatment in house. He did not unfortunately regain um, his vision, but at least it did not uh, worsen. So this is an example of someone who is on, who had syphilitic um, involvement of his uh, eye with uveitis and retinal detachment. He also had meningitis. So I think the point I wanna make is that syphilis uh, can invade the central nervous system early. It can be cleared, so we don't recommend um, LPs. There was a day in my training where I 
we would do LPs on people with primary and secondary syphilis who had HIV. And um, often they had mild pleocytosis, but it really was not uh, clear that it, uh, that it predicted any uh, worse uh, outcome or progression to neurosyphilis. But we need to be taking um, histories to make sure that we do detect those who have um, persistent involvement. So the points here are that uh, complicated syphilis occurs in about uh, three and a half uh, percent of all syphilis cases. It can be neurosyphilis, otosyphilis, or ocular syphilis. With the latter two, um, it's important to realize that the LP, the CSF can be normal. And so you really need to ask questions to pick this up. You need to ask about, have you had any change in vision, any floaters, flashing lights, or photophobia, any change in hearing, tinnitus, difficulty walking, and urgently refer if they have vision or uh, hearing or tinnitus symptoms, refer uh, respectively for opto or audiology. And then if they do have signs of neurosyphilis with cranial nerve dysfunction, meningitis, stroke, altered mental status, or decreased vibratory sense, they need an LP. And do not delay treatment for evaluation. And if in unique situations, you can't uh, get them in for treatment that day, at least get them by someone and try to make sure that they are getting followed up um, uh, aggressively. And before I move on to this, I just want to mention an example of this is a case I had recently with one of my patients who had a uh, RPR of 1 to 256, condylomalata, and his only uh, symptom other than that the rash on the scrotum was that he had um, new onset tinnitus and his audio exam, uh, audiology exam showed that he had unilateral high frequency sensorineural hearing loss. And so he is being treated um, for otic syphilis with um, probenicin and um, procaine pen because he is um, very reliable. Let's now talk about gonorrhea. We're seeing increasing rates of azithromycin and needing, we know for years that we needed higher doses of cephalosporins for pharyngeal um, infection. We have very excellent nucleic acid amplification tests, but unfortunately they don't detect um, antibiotic resistance and we're not doing that many cultures except in um, certain laboratories for surveillance. Um, we have to be aware that uh, this Neisseria gonorrhea is now um, on the list of uh, CDC's five um, priorities for antimicrobial resistant bacteria. And so this was um, one of the big topics at the uh, STI treatment guideline meetings, and they have um, moved to a higher dose of ceftriaxone, now 500 milligrams, was 250 milligrams, and recommend only uh, that treatment if you have ruled out chlamydia. So they are no longer recommending co-treatment because they think part of the increasing resistance to azithro was due to the dual therapy that was being used over the last decades uh, with uh, azithromycin. Your alternatives, if you have someone who uh, has a bona fide um, beta-lactam allergy is genomycin and azithro. And rarely would you use uh, suffixing because you don't get high enough levels to treat uh, pharyngeal infection. They are recommending a test to cure for pharyngeal GC, 
um, and we'll see if um, programs adopt that. That's um, I think we're not in the practice of doing that here, but um, there may be um, an indication for that. For expedited partner treatment, um, cefixime can be used um, if a person is not going to be coming in for, um, for uh, IM ceftriaxone. There are drugs in the pipeline that um, may offer better um, alternatives for treatment of gonorrhea, but those are still in clinical evaluation. My next case is an HIV positive patient um, that you see in clinic who has a, a positive NAT for rectal chlamydia. His pharyngeal and, and urine tests are negative. He's RPR negative. So how would you treat him? Doxy, 100 milligrams um, BID for seven days. Is this azithromycin one gram once, azithro two grams once, or ceftriaxone plus azithro? Great, excellent. Um, let's go here. Um, so first, before we talk about the treatment issues, just to remember that chlamydia, most infections are asymptomatic. It does cause urethritis and cervicitis, usually not very purulent. And one complication of chlamydia, um, in addition to infertility in women, is Reiter's syndrome, um, more commonly observed in men than women. We have an excellent nucleic acid amplification test. We should be using them to screen for in women ages less than 25 and do rectal testing for MSM. And some women uh, will also have rectal infections. So depending on their history, consider that uh, screening for rectal infections as well. Doxycycline is efficacious at all sites. There's been concern about azithro effectiveness for rectal infections. And uh, I'll show you the data, um, I think it's here, that um, basically retrospective studies showed that there was higher efficacy for doxy versus azithro. And then a randomized trial that was conducted and completed last year showed that actually efficacy of uh, doxy, and this was in MSM with rectal chlamydia, was 100% compared to 74% with azithro. So we should be using that. I wanna go back for a moment and just say, um, we should be doing multi-site screening in both MSM and transgender women. So um, based on sites of exposure that recognize that you know, there's no harm in testing all sites if you're not confident that you're getting a, um, a good history about sites that are exposure. You should screen at least annually and screen more frequently if they've had STIs, use meth, have multiple partners, condomless sex, or taking PrEP. And we have this kind of poster in our bathroom when they are done. Uh, Self-testing is very acceptable and equally sensitive to provider-obtained swabs. So now to talk about mycoplasma genitalium, it's um, less common in chlamydia uh, in terms of a cause of a non-gonococcal urethritis. It's more uh, commonly a cause of persistent urethritis. The natural history is not well-defined. There's really no role for population-based screening. You should test for it um, if you can 
for persistent or recurrent urethritis. And there is a NAB that's FDA cleared. And then your treatment is dependent on whether or not you can get macrolide resistance uh, testing. And if you can't, then you treat with doxy for seven days, then moxiflox for seven days. And if it is available, you choose your second um, treatment with a, based on the resistance pattern, either azithro or moxiflox. HPV um, is important. We're, it's important on its own in terms of a cause of uh, cervical, anal, and oral pharyngeal cancer. Recent data, and I'll show you this on the next slide, showed that it also increases um, the risk of HIV among African women in the VOICE trial. This was an important finding presented at IS. The recommendations are in the guidelines in terms of doing catch-up vaccination through age 27 and shared decision-making about use of uh, HPV vaccine in older age groups. There are cervical cancer screening guidance that has been recently updated. And um, importantly, and we look forward to seeing the actual data, the ANCHOR study recently showed that anal cancer screening um, was associated with uh, reduced progression to anal cancer by removal of um, high-grade um, lesions. So we should be anticipating that we'll get new uh, screening guidance when those data are publicly available, and uh, it's going to require training providers and um, in high-resolution anoscopy. These are the data from the VOICE trial where they did a um, case control study among women who seroconverted to HIV and non-seroconverters. And um, what they found is that women who had any HPV, but particularly high-risk HPV, and, um, and those that are targeted by the non-avalent or quadrivalent vaccine were about um, two and a half fold more likely to acquire HIV. So there may be HIV prevention benefits through vaccination as well. HSV, there's not a whole lot new here. It's still just to make sure you're aware that it's the most common cause of GED. There's an increased proportion due to HSV-1. HSV PCR is a preferred diagnostic test. Type-specific serologic tests are not perfect um, and particularly are not so specific in, in uh, those persons with low index values. So if you find someone with that, it, um, if you can, do a second HSV type specific EI for confirmation. The treatment regimens are the same. We have a number of options in terms of allociclovir and uh, acyclovir, famcyclovir. Consider suppressive therapy if you have someone with frequent recurrences or they're HIV infected and have a low CD4. And unfortunately, we still don't, still don't have a preventive or therapeutic vaccine. And I'll just end by saying, as we think about how to address this STI epidemic. We need new interventions. Clearly what we're doing is not um, curtailing the epidemic. So one, one possibility is that we need to think about um, PEP or PrEP. And there was a study done in uh, Ypergay that showed that uh, doxycycline 200 milligram within 24 to 72 hours after sex with an average of about seven pills taken per month um, was associated with a 70% reduction in chlamydia and syphilis, however, no reduction in gonorrhea. So we wonder whether it'll work in persons living with HIV, where you may have different adherence, efficacy and effect on 
uh, in Ypres they were taking event-driven HIV prep. So will it work in people taking daily prep where you may have different, you do have different dosing strategies. It might not be as easy to cue for it. Will it have partial efficacy in, against gonorrhea where we have lower prevalence of tetracycline resistance than in Europe? And uh, what will it do if it works? Will it increase resistance in STIs and other sources of, um, in other organisms that may be associated with transferable tetracycline resistance and in the microbiome and staph aureus? So this, just so you're aware, since this, um, the conference is happening in San Francisco, Annie Luchtmeier and I are co-PIs on a a uh, randomized trial of doxypep versus no pep among MSM and transgender women who are living with HIV or on HIV prep. We're about halfway through. We will be looking at efficacy, um, similar to Ypres-Gay, safety, tolerability, and impact on resistance. Um, so please consider referring people um, who are eligible who've had a bacterial STI in the last year. The other intervention that is being looked at is whether or not meningococcal vaccine will offer protection against gonorrhea. There was a retrospective analysis in New Zealand that showed that meningococcal B vaccine um, there was associated with 30% reduction of GC, and there's now a prospective trial with meninge B vaccine um, that has additional outer proteins that is have high homology with GC that's underway. So stay tuned for that. So just to end, be aware of your local and national epidemiology. Ask your um, patients about their behaviors and their exposures. Do it in a sensitive, gender-neutral way. Test to identify asymptomatic infections. Treat them appropriately. Uh, prevent secondary transmission, screen for extragenital gonorrhea and chlamydia, particularly in MSM, screen people who have uh, RPR, um, who have syphilis, um, based on whichever algorithm your lab is doing. Ask them about um, symptoms of photophobia, vision loss, hearing loss, tinnitus, and then follow the new STI treatment guidelines where we're using higher doses of ceftriaxone um, and not co-treating for chlamydia if it's negative PCR, using doxy as a first-line treatment for chlamydia, reserving your testing and treatment for MGen if there's persistent urethritis, and think about prevention, including using vaccines. And then if you have complicated questions, be aware that there is this STD clinical consultation network and, um, and review the STI guidelines. They're really excellent. So I want to thank my colleagues who shared slides and then um, take a moment for Q&A. Thanks very much, Connie. That was a fantastic overview of a lot of material. So we do have some questions that have appeared and they, they are all good ones. So let's um, start with a more general one. Um, there have been reports of higher levels of STIs among PrEP users. Is that because they're being surveilled more carefully or because there are more um, cases or both of the above or neither of the above? I think it's both of the above. Um, for sure, many as PrEP programs are doing more frequent um, screening. And so I, I think it's, I don't see it as um, a downside of PrEP. I really think it's telling us we're also getting PrEP to the people who need it. Mm -hmm. So as much as we feel like we want to um, see the numbers turn around. This is one of the um, indications for offering PrEP as if someone has a bacterial STI. So um, I think it's both. Great. 
So I have a question from Susan Cohn here uh, about a patient who is um, HIV infected, but undetectable. Uh, he's not been seen for three years uh, and had a negative prior uh, serology, serologic studies for syphilis. He shows up now with a recent retinal detachment. Rectal sores now has a positive FTA and RPR of one to 256. Uh, does he need an LP? Um, and um, how about uh, chlamydia, uh, CT? CT? And uh, what about uh, neurosyphilis presumptive treatment? Thanks, Susan. That's a great question. So the key thing here is, and I probably didn't emphasize it enough, is that you do not have to do LPs for otic and ocular syphilis. You should really just get them in for treatment because you can have uh, normal CSF and it really doesn't change your management. So if he's got a retinal detachment, he or she, um, he should be getting um, treatment for ocular syphilis, which is basically the same as neurosyphilis. Okay. If somebody shows up with the acute onset of hearing loss, um, can the RPR still be negative and have this be related to syphilis? Or is that a, what's your thought about that in terms of kinetics? Yeah, no, it, it would be extremely unusual to have a negative RPR um, with acute onset hearing loss in someone who's got, if it's due to syphilis. By that time, they should have converted their RPR. There is Rarely, we can see the prozone um, phenomenon, but labs, um, basically that's where you have so much antigen that you basically um, bind up all the antibodies, but labs should be doing dilutions to look for that. And you uh, made the point about um, testing for uh, cure with uh, GC. What would, how long after your treat should you test? Three months. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about trichomonas, diagnosis and treatment changes? Any, anything there of note from your perspective? Um, not a lot. Um, I think the only thing is that uh, the main treatment, uh, well, first of all, there is a NAT that tests for trichomonas. So if possible, use that because wet mount is really only going to pick up about half and certainly I'm not sure how many clinicians even do wet mats anymore, but um, metronidazole would be the um, choice. And instead of single dose, they would recommend um, 500 milligrams over a week and um, twice a day. And the one thing that I, I think they called out in the tre treatment guidelines that um, we should be aware of as clinicians is this whole sort of uh, anabuse-like effect that we were taught about between alcohol and metronidazole really has not borne out in, um, in vivo. So we can, we don't have to um, counsel people about um, alcohol use and being afraid of that while on metronidazole. Well, that makes metronidazole much more palatable, I suspect. <laughs> All right. Uh, Still not very palatable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any more thoughts about rocephin and uh, neurosyphilis and people who have pen allergies? Well, um, you know, I, I think that, first of all, it's the cross-reactivity between a third-generation cephalosporin and penicillin is only present in about 10%. Uh, so I would, um, if possible, would desensitize them. I, I feel like we, this is probably a debatable uh, question, but I, I feel like we just have much less experience with ceftriaxone than um, we do with uh, IV PNG. So, and uh, certainly would be right. not wanting to do it as an outpatient so, with misnosis. 
I just had a uh, internet um, loss there. So we are uh, out of time, but we have some questions that remain and perhaps what we can do is get to them in the roundtable discussion um, later today. But thanks very much for a fantastically uh, comprehensive talk. And uh, we'll uh, move on now to uh, uh, Dr. Gandhi, who's returned from her uh, trip to the CIFAR directors meeting.